Mr. Zuckerberg, this is an administrative board hearing. You're being accused of intentionally breaching security, violating copyrights, violating individual privacy by creating the website www.facemash.com. You're also charged with being in violation of university policy on distribution of digitized images. Before we begin with our questioning, you're allowed to make a statement. Would you like to do so? I've, you know, I've already apologized in the Crimson to the ABHW, to Fuerza Latina, and to any women at Harvard who may have been insulted as I take it that they were. As for any charges stemming from the breach of security, I believe I deserve some recognition from this board. I'm sorry? Yes. I don't understand. Which part? You deserve recognition. I believe I pointed out some pretty gaping holes in your system. Excuse me, may I? Yes. Mr. Zuckerberg, I'm in charge of security for all computers on the Harvard network, and I can assure you of its sophistication. In fact, it was that level of sophistication that led us to you in less than four hours. Four hours? Yes, sir. That would be impressive, except if you had known what you were looking for, you would have seen it written on my dorm room window. Yeah, that is a clip from The Social Network starring Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. And it's one of my favourite films of all time, not just because I'm obviously super interested in the topic, but everything from the soundtrack to the acting to the poetic license that was taken. It is just phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, go as soon as the show ends and watch it. It is phenomenal. Uh, Before the break, we were chatting to Cullen Buig about the fun sides of Facebook. Back in the day, setting up an event page for a free gaff or whatever it might have been. But now we're going to look at the fallout because it's fair to say that Facebook has had its fair share of negative headlines over the last two decades. And in my opinion, the Cambridge Analytica scandal is at the heart of many of them. And it was definitely, for me, a turning point. Stephen O'Leary of Alitico is with me now. Uh, Stephen, would you agree with my assessment? Uh, Was Cambridge Analytica the critical moment or had the tide already started to turn against them? It was beginning to turn. And I think some of that had to do with the sheer size of the network. So when you pass a billion users and you have that many people connected to a single network and you start to become a central player, particularly from an advertising point of view, then anyone who provided traditional advertising, so think about TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, magazines, they start to look in much more detail at where their competition's coming from. And so there was almost an inevitability that as Facebook's popularity as an advertising provider and an advertising platform increased, and they started to take much more market share from an advertising point of view, then traditional media, and that includes you know investigative journalism and others, well, I started to train them as an organization. And so it was probably in the years, you know, kind of 2016, 2017, that we really started to see uh, an increase in those questions being asked about essentially, you know, how much power does this one network have? And it did culminate, I think, you know, and a kind of a, a tipping point was the, the 2016 US presidential election. But 
the Cambridge Analytica story also isn't black and white. And I think what we've learned in the years since has been really interesting about actually the role that it played. And really, there's been a huge amount of uh, investigation done into this. Um, and it didn't make anywhere near as many headlines kind of two or three years later as investigations almost invariably never do. But in 2021, it was widely reported that actually Cambridge Analytica's impact on voter behavior was almost non-existent. So I'm happy to kind of maybe recap on where that story brought us before. But where we got to in the end was actually something that said they said they were doing this and they had this impact. But actually, there's no evidence to back it up. Yeah, and I think we should probably delve a little bit deeper into that because I do think it was, like, as I said to Cullum, it was one of the first times I think people sat up and realised that, you know, these social networks where we spend a huge amount of our time may not be fully transparent when it comes to our data or maybe we should be reading the terms and conditions that apply when you download things like Facebook Messenger and so on. So I suppose let's just recap what the allegations against Cambridge Analytica were the fallout and then that further investigation that you alluded to there? So social networks, one thing they've gotten much better at um, probably over the last kind of six to eight years is privacy um, and data privacy. But there's no doubting that in the early days of most social networks and as the industry was beginning to emerge, it was relatively easy to scrape and mine data from some of these networks. And some of them had kind of very strong policies in place to prevent this and others didn't. And really, this is not uncommon of any new technology and, and social networks probably in the, you know, kind of the late 2000s and the early 2010s, you know, that was still relatively new, right? I mean, the, the, the networks themselves were, were relatively new. So it was invariable or, or inevitable that organizations and companies would take advantage of this data that was available. And that's what we saw in the case of Cambridge Analytica. So what they proposed or said they could do was create extremely personalized uh, advertising targeted at really specific demographics. So instead of just having an ad on TV or an ad on the radio that will go out and be heard or seen by a certain percentage of the population, they claimed to be able to target at a much more um, hyper-local and hyper-targeted way. So imagine instead of targeting people in Ireland, they would target people in Cork who mm -hmm. were interested in Manchester United and were over the age of 16 and also liked Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. So they would get to this really specific demographic and as a result of all these knowns, they would then create a type of ad that they knew would have the biggest impact. And where this started to come to the fore was in relation to the, the 2016 US presidential election and the claims that actually, as an organization, they had mined the data, voter data, or the data um, to do with those who were, who were going to vote in the elections from Facebook uh, and were using it to essentially hyper-target the electorate ahead of the, um, the US presidential elections. Mm. Now, I remember when this story broke and I remember so much of the reaction was this is outrageous this is appalling can you please give me a step-by-step -step guide on how to delete my Facebook profile because I'm so appalled 
I don't remember as much conversation of people going, geez, they have all this information because I manually put it in and I interacted in such a way that gave my data. Now, there's no question that what was done was, I suppose, circumspect, to put it politely. But I do wonder how much of an onus is on us, the consumer, for blindly signing up to things and checking in at places and saying that we like Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran and liking their pages and so on. Yeah, th- so there's, there's probably two parts to this. The first is probably to close out almost the Cambridge Analytica piece and it's it's kind of double-edged, right? So what the outcome of the investigations was that they didn't misuse data in the EU um, and that, you know, for them, obviously, that's a, a good result, right? But on the flip side, Part of the reason this was found to be the case was that actually they had zero impact. And so they had claimed to be able to influence elections and shape politics. But the reality was they were massively overstating their impact. And that's ultimately what came out of this, that actually all this data they had access to and all this information was not being used in any effective kind of way. And that really their impact was was literally non-existent. And there's been, you know, multiple academic papers written to this effect and a huge amount of time and, and resource put into it. But on the flip side, coming back to that idea of us giving our information away or providing it to, to third parties, there's this really easy way of thinking about social networks and, and beyond when it comes to providing data. And it's the idea that if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Um, so if Facebook is free, our X is free, our TikTok is free, or you name any kind of social network. If you're able to access it by simply just providing your information and then turning it on and being entertained, well, then the flip side is you're going to be served advertising uh, through that. And the more they understand as social networks about you, the better they can target that advertising. And in theory, the more effective the advertising can be. So I think what we started to see was a much greater level of awareness emerging in the last 10 years about this fact and about the trade-off and that it wasn't that you had to leave any of the networks. And in fact, we saw all the networks grow. We saw new networks emerge, but instead that it wasn't at that point really fair to be saying, oh, I had no idea because now we did have an idea. Now it was mainstream news. And that's one of the things that the Cambridge Analytica scandal brought to the fore was there was an increased level of awareness. And so then you had a choice to make. Were you comfortable giving your data away and providing it to a third party in return for the entertainment and network that you were getting? Or did you decide, actually, no, the trade-off isn't worth it? And I think what a lot of people did was they, they took a happy medium. So they said, well, actually, no, there's a lot of value in the social network. And actually, I do want to spend time there, but I'm going to really focus on the privacy settings. And so I'm going to make changes that limit the amount of information the network has about me and critically how that information is being used. And that's probably been the big change we've seen in the last four or five years. Yeah, and I think it's important and only fair to point out that Facebook did implement a whole host of new settings and controls for users. uh, And particularly, like, not just because of Cambridge Analytica, but also because of GDPR as well. So you could now go in and you still, to this day, can go in and you can control your privacy in a much easier way than previously before. 
You can also see, and one of my favourite things uh, was going through and seeing the assumptions that Facebook had made about me and what ads I was getting and why. And it's never about, as I said to Colm, it's never about you, the individual. It's about someone in your demographic with the same kind of interests who have interacted with this, that and the other. And that's how you get the the ads that are seen before or put before you. Um, let's just talk about the value of the ads business for a second, because if you were a small business, you didn't need to have a website. You could just have a Facebook page. And it did seem to unlock massive potential, particularly for SMEs to engage with a new customer base without a ridiculous amount of expense. So that side of things should be acknowledged and celebrated as we look back at two decades as well. Like without question, there are hundreds of thousands of small businesses that would not have existed had it not been for Facebook as a social network. And critically, actually, their acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp along the way, Instagram in particular um, as a as another network, because when that occurred, it was obviously huge news. And there are questions today that if the same deal was brought forward, would the acquisition um, have passed um, and gotten through regulatory uh, scrutiny? But it did at the time. And what that did was it took pro- arguably the fastest growing social network in the world at the time in, in Instagram, a legacy provider in terms of Facebook, and it merged those two things together. And that really was a kind of a you know, a lightning rod. It was a really central point in terms of the growth of both networks. Mm-hmm. And critically, from an advertising point of view, you got this incredible crossover of information um, about users. And in a way, one of the major advantages social networks tend to have is their ability, particularly when it comes to e-commerce or, or people selling things online, is to directly connect the sale to the source of the lead. So, you know, traditionally the big challenge advertisers uh, and those selling advertising have faced is, you know, well, can you prove that by listening to that ad on the radio or watching that ad on TV or seeing it in a magazine ultimately led to the person buying the car? But of course, with a social network, you can prove from a traffic point of view and, and in other ways that actually your Facebook advertising is or your Meta or your Instagram or whatever the network is actually leading to a conversion. And as soon as you're able to prove that, especially to a small business, well, then the small business can actually calculate the cost of the sale. So they can directly say, if I spend 100 euros on advertising on Facebook and I can get 500 euros worth of sales and my margin is X, well, then I'm just going to keep feeding it because I'm getting the return. And that's what you saw. You saw these kind of quite small brands in some cases explode in popularity um, and rack up massive sales in a very short period of time because there was this direct correlation between the ability to target from an advertising point of view and actually track it to a sale um, on a website later. And that was a game changer for, for an awful lot of small businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, it's an important thing to acknowledge and appreciate about uh, Facebook. Stay with me, Stephen, because when we come back, I want to look at some of the other trials and tribulations, perhaps, that the company has faced over the last two decades. Stay with us here on Newstalk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. We are doing a Facebook special this week, looking back at two decades 
of the social media giant. Stephen O'Leary of Alitico is with me. And Stephen, before the break, we were talking through the impact of Cambridge Analytica and some of the other scandals that uh, had plagued, I think is probably a fair enough word, uh, the company over the last number of years. Um, Another area that it transformed and it's not as clear as to whether or not it's a good thing or not is news and news outlets. Uh, They, you know, it became part and parcel now for newsrooms around the world and every news outlet to have social media teams and digital teams who cross-posted content onto Facebook. They got great interaction and so on. But from this led or, or came some accusations that maybe negative content was getting more interaction, thus being further heightened or upped on your on your wall. Um, talk to me a little bit about what we saw from a news point of view when content started being cross-promoted on Facebook and the impact that had, because Facebook for the longest time were just enabling people to post whatever they wanted and there was an awful lot of debate as to whether or not, firstly, Facebook should get a payment for having that content on its platform and also if it should have stronger regulations or rules in place for the types of content that should be posted. A lot of this came down to how do you define a news outlet? So one of the big talking points was at what point do you have to carry some form of disclaimer or warning on content that although a piece of content appears to be coming from a news outlet, that actually there are serious questions as to the authentic nature of this news outlet or the really strong bias maybe of a news outlet, etc. So how the media interacts with not just Facebook, it's true of every social network, but Facebook, by virtue of being the biggest or probably the most important at the moment, is something that is a it's a live issue because within the last you know six to 12 months, we've seen further changes in terms of the algorithm and how Facebook decides to serve content that has a had a really big impact on traffic to traditional news providers and their websites. And you know, for better or worse, when things are good and you understand the algorithm and it's reliable and you know what you're going to get, well, then if you're a newsroom and you do dedicate resources to creating content specific for Facebook or you do focus on, you know, kind of the integration of that social network into your distribution strategy, well, the returns can be massive, right? You can see huge increases in traffic to your website, which has a knock-on effect on readership, which has a knock-on effect on advertising. There can be, again, this really virtuous circle where the problems emerge is when you place so much faith or time or investment in a third party who ultimately doesn't owe you anything and doesn't have any skin in the game with you at a at a at a kind of at a whim um or for any particular reason if they decide they're going to change their strategy as a social network well, then you can have a massive negative knock-on effect. And we've seen this occur at multiple times over the last probably decade. So as much as we've seen small businesses thrive and flourish and grow um, and emerge thanks to Facebook as a network and the advertising opportunities they've provided and that community growth opportunity, on the flip side, we've seen news organizations almost come and go 
because their strategy was so Facebook focused. And when Facebook changed the way they promoted or served news content, well, then there was a knock-on immediate impact on traffic to websites. And in some cases, it, it crippled organizations. Yeah, I referenced uh, a piece by Corey Doctorow on the hard shoulder during the week. Uh, and he wrote about the issuification of social networks. And he explained it really well, whereby, you know, these tech geniuses come up with an idea. Users flock to them because it's a new way to engage with friends and fans and followers and all the rest. Then advertisers see that that's where the people are. And so they go and advertise a hell of a lot. And then the social network realizes that there's actually more money to be made for them. So things change again and it becomes kind of a crappy user experience for the user. And then the businesses aren't happy because users aren't spending as much time. And and it's kind of a template that you could place over pretty much any social media network over the last whatever number of years. And I just wonder, you know, if you look at some of the, the research stats and you'd be more familiar with them than I would. Like we know that younger people are getting their news from TikTok and so on. When did people in their 30s and 40s stop engaging with Facebook as the go-to place? Like as Cullen was saying earlier on, he'd only go on it every now and then. It's no longer an appointment to tune in or an appointment to engage in the day-to-day media diet of people in their 30s and 40s where it once was the center of their universe. So I think there's a a number of different factors at play here. Um, You know, there's an element of newness that a younger demographic, so let's say teens and those maybe in their 20s, expect from the media that they consume. And so they're constantly on the lookout for new. And that doesn't just apply to technology, right? You think about new restaurants or new bars or, you know, new experiences. That skews towards a younger demographic. It's just the nature of life and why being young is so good, right? And as you get older, well, then you stick to more of the things that you probably know and that are tried and trusted. And in a way, that's why we see on Facebook at the moment, you know, the kind of almost grandparents generation who use it quite actively in some cases, right? So like local community groups are very big. And, you know, there's there's lots of things like that where you know the demographic is older. But you're right. There is a a section in the middle. And again, I don't want to put an exact age on them but who maybe grew up with Facebook, but then transitioned to Instagram and have now possibly transitioned on a little bit more to to TikTok. And in a way, it's because these networks were new and they met an emerging need um, that these kind of consumers had for a a new network, a new way to to talk about who you were or to to share information or to to just be entertained because quite often these these are entertainment platforms. And in a way, too, if you go right back to kind of 05, 06 and think about Facebook's role, in lots of cases, it was a way to almost stay connected to people that you mightn't have seen in a while or that you were only seeing at that certain point in time. So across colleges, as kind of college was maybe going on and coming to an end, you know, a Facebook group or your Facebook network was a way to stay connected to those people. Now there is so much competition to be that connector. Right. So if you go to college now, the last thing you're doing is joining Facebook to connect with people because you can connect with them in tons of other ways. Right. You're probably straight into WhatsApp groups. There's probably kind of like private accounts on Instagram. You know, you're using LinkedIn for all your professional stuff. So now the competition to actually be the network or a provider of a network, you know, it's vast. There's so much to kind of choose from. 
So I think invariably Facebook has come under pressure to remain relevant to a certain audience. But if you look at the usage numbers, the network isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Its demographic is aging and they're using the network in a different way, but it's still got an incredibly important role to play for a very significant demographic and portion of the population, not just in, in Ireland, but across the world. Yeah, and we did mention this earlier on, but in certain parts of the world, you know, Facebook is the internet. It's how they engage and how they interact. Uh, so I think it, it's far too soon to be saying, you know, the, the death knell is running for, for Facebook. That's not the case at all. Um, another really interesting debate that has occurred many, many times over the two decades that Facebook has existed relates to the policing of content on the platform. And we alluded to it briefly in terms of news articles, but in terms of online abuse or cyberbullying, um, you know, I don't know how many times I've said over the years here on News Talk that they adhere to their own community standards. Obviously, legislation is catching up at long last and uh, we have things now like the Digital Services Act. We have the Online Safety Commissioner here in Ireland. But that that free reign that all social media platforms had for quite a while of just, you know, deciding within themselves what was right and what was wrong and the role of the admins, that is an important part of this story as well. It is. And, and I think this is one of those times when I feel we're really lucky to live in Europe. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, the Digital Services Act, which has come into effect, you know, within the last kind of six to nine months, has had a really um, powerful impact on this. Because I, I think, again, to give credit to the networks, you know, it wasn't that when the DSA got introduced that they suddenly started doing things, you know, for, you know, again, for probably five to 10 years, different networks at different levels have invested in content moderation. And in fact, it's probably... Musk's uh, takeover at uh, at Twitter or X that has probably shone a light on the value of those content moderation teams and 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 still the discretion that these big companies have as to whether or not they're going to resource them. But what the Digital Services Act brought in were transparency reports, and we're starting to see the first versions of those coming through, and they give a really interesting insight into the resources that are being dedicated by you know not just Facebook but Snapchat, TikTok, and others into the moderation of like, you know, illegal or hateful or, or fraudulent content. So we're we're really getting a good idea now of what these companies are doing to handle misinformation, disinformation, um, and, and that other type of content that shouldn't be on networks and shouldn't be possible to share. And look, there's no question that they're not getting it right and that there's a huge amount more to do but they're also not just sitting on their hands and pretending it's not there. They've addressed it. And critically, you know, they have to comply now with this Digital Services Act. We know what the fines look like uh, in the event of a failure to do so. So there's a really strong case um, for each of the networks, including Facebook, to continue to invest in this. And, you know, again, there's a lot of chat at the moment about AI um, and the concerns and worries about it. But Part of the upside, actually, is how you can use AI to detect this content before it even gets published. And I think that's one of the things that we actually don't hear an awful lot about. I mean, except from Facebook themselves, obviously. But we don't hear an awful lot about actually the content that you never see because it never makes it out in the first place. I think the statistic, I don't have it to hand, but I'm almost certain it's 90% plus 
of harmful or abusive content never makes it onto the platform because actually the systems that are in place, the automated systems actually prevent it from ever being shared in the first place. So there's an awful lot of work to do. And I think for anyone who's probably experienced harmful um, or abusive you know, content online will attest to often the difficulties in having it removed or being able to report it. But there's no question that some networks are doing better than others. And certainly, again, to, to give them their dues, I think Facebook as a group are able to point to evidence and investment they're making through these transparency reports um, into the moderation of that illegal, hateful or, or fraudulent content. Yeah, and I do think it is something that hopefully we will continue to see progress um, occur and positively impact users. But it is one of those things that I'm just baffled that it's taken so long, to be honest. But anyway, let's not dwell on that bit. Um, We know that they rebranded Facebook, rebranded to Meta a few years ago, and it was all part of this big vision to help us connect with our friends and family because that was the original ethos of Facebook or the mission of Facebook, uh, but in a more virtual world so that even though we couldn't be together, we could be together and so on, so on, so on. Um, When you look back at that rebranding and then you look at the progress that has happened towards the metaverse and the conversations that have had around it, what do you see when you look into your crystal ball as to what meta slash Facebook will be over the coming years? Oh, it's a great question. If I knew the answer, I'd be rich, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, like, again, look, hindsight is, you know, is twenty twenty, right? As we as we regularly say, right? And there's definitely a case that two or three years ago when um, the metaverse was as topical as it was and maybe held as much promise as we thought it did, that actually the investment that uh, meta were making and the rebrand and all that went with that maybe felt like it was a you know a good punt a chance to maybe get ahead of the competition and to to maybe save or re-energize what was probably at the time being described as a flailing network in terms of facebook we've already talked about the demographics and the aging population etc um i think by any estimation it's fair to say that that project has not delivered the type of results that meta would have wanted um i think they've been clear about this on things like earnings calls and other places and you know, what uh, I guess emerged in tandem is a, a bit of a breakthrough or an absolute breakthrough in terms of artificial intelligence and in particular open AI and the, the success they've had. So I think, I don't think the metaverse as an idea is going to completely go away. And I think there is still a lot of interest in things like headsets uh, and, and how they're going to work. And obviously Apple's um, recent kind of announcements uh, and new products in this space are, again, an interesting thing to look at because it's not just a software play, which is obviously where Facebook traditionally sit, but there's a hardware play here too in terms of the actual devices we will use to uh, to engage with the, the networks and these places. But I think, you know, the metaverse was a punt. It probably hasn't given the type of return uh, that Meta more broadly or Facebook, et cetera, would have wanted. Um, and I think in, in a way, this is a lot, a lot of this has to do with timing, right? So I don't think we're not going to hear about it in the future. I think it'll be there. But I think this idea of us all engaging in some virtual world in the next, you know, two to five years, that feels like a stretch. I don't think we're we're there yet. Okay, so I've left the easiest question for the very last question. I hope you're ready now. 
Overall, has Facebook been a good thing for society? Wow. Yeah, that is easy, isn't it? Um, I think it has been good. And you declare, I mean, I have to declare this strong bias here, right? So Olitico as an organization arguably wouldn't exist if mm -hmm. Facebook had never been built. Because if there's no social networks to analyze, well, then you don't really have a social media analytics company. So I am conscious of my bias, but I look at other things, right? So I take the example of, you know, uh, my parents' generation, right? And I look at, you know, someone like my mom and the role the network plays for her from a community point of view. So she likes taking photographs, right? She's got a nice camera. And one of the things she does in her community is like take photographs. And so in the past, those would have been photographs she would have taken and shared maybe with friends or family or emailed them to people or whatever. But now what she does when she goes down the village in Cork where she lives and, and kind of takes photographs of wildlife and other bits and pieces is she puts them on the community notice board. And she gets this really nice engagement from other people in the village who constantly tell her how much they love her photographs. And I know how much of a kick she gets from that. Mm -hmm. So I know all the bad. I know all the things that go wrong. I know the data concerns. I know the time wastage. I know the, the pressure this places on, you know, young people in particular. Like, there's a myriad of issues that social networks bring with them. But I see the positives too. And I observe the positives. And I, I see the connection these networks can make. And, you know, there's no question that our behavior and our usage of them will will hopefully evolve and change and improve over time. Mm -hmm. And I think this, you know, as I say, the Digital Services Act, I think, is going to have a really positive impact on, on it. But my view is that there is enough good that's happened um, and enough positive change. You know, you go back to the Arab Spring and other things like this. There have been big enough moments where social networks have played a really important role that the world would be poorer without them. Um, but I guess my wish for the next decade is that networks like Facebook and others continue to invest and focus on ways that they can be a force for good um, and, and essentially combat and mitigate um, against the kind of the, the dangers or the perilous ways they can be used. Stephen O'Leary from Politico, thank you so much. Pleasure, Jess. And that's it from me this bank holiday weekend. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And while you're there, make sure you hit subscribe to Inside the Crime Season 3. It's hosted by our course correspondent, Frank Rainey, and it tells the story of 19-year-old Una Linsky, who disappeared on a 15-minute walk home from a bus stop very near her house in Meath in 1971. Uh, it's an incredible production, definitely worth your time. Episode 1 came out last Tuesday. Episode 2 will be out this Tuesday. So hit subscribe while you're in the app and uh, every episode over the coming weeks will just land on your device. Uh, that's it from me, as I said. Uh, John Fardy's up next here with Screen Time. I'll chat to you next week.